CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. Glad to have you all with us for another show today. We've got a full house, uh, and I'm glad we do because we have so much to talk about on the show today. Uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Uh, Kevin, always fun to have you. You've been on the road a lot in the last few Last month or so, really, and I'm glad you're back for your Tuesday appearances on the show. It's great to be here. My Tuesday's not complete if I'm not joining you, Bill. <laughs> Sitting next to you, and for those of you who are watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to the GPB news page on Facebook, is Melita Easters. Melita is the founder and the director of the Georgia Win List, uh, who's, which has the mission of recruiting women who are Democrats and pro-choice. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you for being here. Um, sitting next to me is uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie, political science professor at Emory University. School is well back in session. It is well in session. How many courses are you teaching this semester? Because of administrative responsibilities, I only teach one. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And what is that class this time? So I'm teaching a class called New Black Political Leadership. That sound, so that sounds really interesting, and I would assume that, among other things, that gives you a chance to talk about one of your books. Actually, I talk about Cor- all of them in that class. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the one class where The book about Cory Booker as <laughs> mayor, your much more recent book about Barack Obama and his impact mm-hmm. on the African Americans in, in this country and how they ended up dealing with him. Um, so terrific. Thank you for being here. Uh, and also, former Georgia State Rep Ed Lindsay is uh, with us today. He now, of course, is a partner and the head of the political practice, or should I say government ref- uh, uh, affairs. Government relations. Government relations practice for the state of Georgia at Denton's, which I always like to point out, the world's largest law firm, Ed. Do you Thank have you. like a sign-up? That has that on it, you know, Denton's world's <laughs> largest, in 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 a hundred different languages. Yes. <laughs> okay, um, we've got a lot of state news we're going to talk about. There are a couple of headlines we probably ought to address uh, in terms of impeachment. Uh, one of them is, you know, Andre, let me start with you on this one, if you don't mind. You know, if anybody thought that once the Democrats, the committee chairs of the six committees who have been charged with looking into possible articles of impeachment against the president, if they thought they were going to be able to start issuing subpoenas and asking for White House officials to show up, if that was going to be easy, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo today clearly made it uh, apparent that that wasn't going to happen. Pompeo wrote a very sharp, a very harsh letter to the chairs who had asked for documents from his team, his staff, who had asked for the former ambassador to Ukraine, who was summarily dismissed uh, by President uh, uh, Trump, uh, from a variety of... uh, Kurt Volker, who was serving as an unpaid uh, uh, ambassador of sorts to Ukraine. If anybody thought it was going to be easy, Pompeo wrote a letter, and among other things, he said, um, I am concerned with aspects of your request. I will not tolerate the tactics you're using. I will use all means at my disposal to prevent and expose any attempts to intimidate the dedicated professionals at the State Department. By, uh, one of his complaints is you want us to produce too many documents too quickly. Uh, But it's pretty clear he's going to take a hostile approach to all of this, I think. So I'm going to defer to Ed on this, um, in part because I'm not a lawyer, but I'm not surprised. And I would think that the Democrats aren't surprised that members of the administration would be hostile. I mean, there are two things that came to mind when I first heard about Secretary Pompeo's tone. You know, I'm reminded of the fact that Congress is, is, is charged with oversight of the executive branch. And so, yeah, when they ask, you are supposed to produce information. But given the fact that this is being done in the context of um, an impeachment inquiry uh, where uh, the subpoena powers is, is higher, like not cooperating is actually evidence in and of itself, as I understand it. Am I wrong about that? Well, the question is whether or not he's questioning the time 
uh, or uh, whether or not he's simply refusing to comply. And my reading of his letter was primarily uh, focused around uh, he was questioning the timing that they're seeking the deposition. Well, he actually cites like five different factors. That's certainly uh, one of them. Uh, But in fact, Ed, and this gets a little more complicated than I can wrap my head around. There's only some, some of this is subpoenaed material, mm-hmm. but some of it is not under, in some cases they did not actually issue subpoenas. And Pompeo is uh, making the point that some of this stuff that you're looking for, you didn't subpoena us yeah. on, and we don't have to respond. And there's conflicts. You want you want our former ambassador to appear, but you want documents that might relate to it. It gets very complicated. Well, yeah. I mean, well, and I was saying, you know, there, there are a host of reasons why you would be concerned about a subpoena. Number one is the timing. Number two is whether or not there's certain uh, governmental uh, security issues involved, uh, whether or not someone has information that should be considered confidential, in which case you have to have to go about it in a different way. There's a myriad of different issues. Usually this takes place in uh, behind the scenes beforehand, and subpoenas are your last step that you do. Uh, it would appear that this time they started with the subpoenas and then wanted yeah. to negotiate, which is usually a, a, a way to get the other side to get their their back up. Uh, The fact of the matter is that, you know, and this goes all the way back, and I'm going to give a little history lesson here perhaps. Uh, Edmund Burke, back 230 years ago, uh, when he was explaining impeachment process in the House of Lords, uh, made it very clear that uh, this is, you know, the impeachment process is a political uh, process that should be... uh, considered by statesmen and and determined by statesmen. And the question here, ultimately, is how will the public view uh, the two sides in this issue? Will they view them as craven political politicians or will they view them as statesmen? Because let's face certain bottom line facts. The Democrats have, to a certain degree, painted themselves in a corner as shown by the, and also with the polling uh, in which Democrats overwhelmingly support the impeachment. The Democrats will impeach in the House. Uh, in other words, let's be clear, vote for articles of vote impeachment. Vote for articles of Thank impeachment you. in the Thank House, uh, barring some unforeseen circumstance taking place. The Senate, barring some unforeseen circumstance taking place, will not vote to convict uh, without uh, incurring the wrath of their Republican base. So the question as we go through this process is, is can we get through this process expeditiously and can your respective side come out looking like a statesman as opposed to a mere politician? You know, and so, that's going to be the hard part for these folks. And can, can they do it quickly enough so that we can then move on? Because what's happening right now, for instance, within the Democratic presidential field, it's frozen. Yeah. Uh, all these discussions that were going on about gun rights and about or gun control, health care, immigration, all those issues are on the wayside until this issue is decided on the Democratic side. And Republicans have a similar problem with being able to present their case for re-election. You know, uh, Melita, it does seem to me that uh, uh, Ed makes one point that's worth further uh, discussion, and that's that Democrat Nancy Pelosi has charged him with moving quickly. It's clear from the Pompeo letter today that uh, if he is representative of other people in the administration, they're going to want to call either to testify or to submit documents. The White House isn't going to, the administration isn't going to make it easy for them to do that. So on one hand, Pelosi says, do this quickly. Let's get it over with by the end of the year. Um, but, but as we'll discuss in a few minutes, we've got to wait to see how the American voters come along on this. And, and we're going to talk about the polling in a, in a few minutes, but that's right. They've got to be very careful about how they push this. Pompeo can make a fairly good argument, it seems to me, to to the public that I can't produce all these documents this quickly. They're being unreasonable. They're, they are bullying. They are intimidating. And I think Democrats have to be mindful of that, don't they? Well, they do. But for Republicans with an R by their name, they're do, using a lot of D words, Defer, deflect, <laughs> dismiss, um, deny. Wait. They're they're really the Republican play 
playbook is to distract absolutely. from the absolute absolutely. truth of whether this is a constitutional You're, abdication a, absolute, of duty. But, absolutely. But, Kevin, the fact of the matter is, as Edmund Burke said so long ago, mm-hmm. this is a political process. So Republicans and Democrats are fighting for the hearts and minds of the American people. Yeah, and you have to think about uh, if the Republicans in the White House are in a strong position to delay. I mean, I think that's part of what Ed pointed out. And ask yourself who that helps. Uh, to me, I believe it helps the Republicans and the president because uh, everything will be about process and procedure and people will forget about how this even started unless there is some bombshell like in the Nixon White House, the tapes. I mean, we don't know if there's anything like that. Um, we can't even get a true transcript of a phone call, as it mm-hmm. turns out. So there may be nothing like that. But as it drags on and on and on, it starts, I think, to look more like craven politicians, I think was the All right. word. I guess. Let, me, let me move on to one other headline from this morning and do this fairly quickly so we can get into a more the more substantive conversation about the polling and then some state issues. Uh, Chuck Grassley, the most senior Republican in the United States Senate, Uh, Despite the fact that President Trump has insisted that the whistleblower is a traitor, that he wants to get his name, find out as much as he can about him, uh, Grassley today has said, uh, leave him alone. This whistleblower has every right to protect his his privacy should be protected. uh, Grassley says he honors and respects uh, the, the role of whistleblowers, including this one. Of course, Kevin Grassley is the champion of all champions of whistleblowers among the Republicans in the Congress, so it's not surprising he would do that. But uh, it's the kind of tiny little crack that uh, we may start seeing appear as the uh, fight goes on. Well, do you think it has anything to do with concerns about breaking the whistleblower law that he may have taken that position? Because it's gotten a little weird for the president to be demanding to talk to the whistleblower. I think we... Well, well, the whole idea. The the president's tweets make it open season on that whistleblower to those who know who he or she is. I mean, the the, the bottom line is, from a legal standpoint, uh, he he or she is entitled to confidentiality. Uh, That's the whole reason why the whistleblower law was put into place. It is nonpartisan in its nature. And you have uh, folks uh, both on the Republican and the Democratic side who have said that this this process needs to be protected because this is the best way to ferret out uh, possible corruption down the road. So what would they do? To, they can still ask the whistleblower to testify in confidence or yes. in some situation where their identity isn't revealed? Yes. I mean, that's how it would be done uh, by the House committee. Uh, and apparently they are in negotiations with that with the uh, whistleblowers attorney uh, to uh, to try to figure out what are going to be the parameters. But it is very important uh, that the whistleblower's com- uh, name uh, be protected uh, from public concern. And, and keep in mind, the whistleblower is simply someone who said, you know, here's possible evidence for you to go out and take a look at. And, and quite frankly, I think it's important for us to move beyond that as quickly as possible. And let's get to the substantive concerns Andrew? that are being raised. So, I mean, I completely agree. Um, with you, Ed, I think the bigger problem here is not just the fact that the president's tweets could kind of gin up people to try to do bad things and actually try to harm somebody, which I think, you know, is a real um, and present danger, not just for the whistleblower, but for also the people who fed the information to the whistleblower for them to make that report. But I think the other issue is, is that President Trump is trying to hide behind procedure. This is not the first time that this has happened. I mean, I would argue that sometimes hiding behind procedure and twisting it um, is um, and due process, uh, you know, especially when I think about Brett Kavanaugh on other types of things, but there's this idea of we have this idea in our head that in a criminal proceeding, you are you have the right to face your accusers. And so Trump is now trying to say that this is the same type of situation when it's not. And it's not for a good reason, but to uh, a public who might be predisposed to support him, who is not that up on the differences between what's going on in this case and what would go on in a criminal trial. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems like he is being unfairly sort of mistreated and he's trying to appeal to that sympathy. And I think that's what we have to watch out but for. Same time, and, and I agree with you when it comes to this whistleblower. But getting back to my point earlier, it's going to be extremely important for both sides 
uh, as they go through this political process to recognize the importance of due process. Uh, it's going to be very, you know, there are a lot of Democrats in the House, who, for instance, who don't necessarily want uh, to have the president present his side of the story in a committee. They want to get through the impeachment process as quickly as possible. There are some Republicans, perhaps in the Senate, who aren't going to necessarily want to hear all the evidence uh, against the president in that in that trial. And it's but it's going to be very important for both sides uh, if they are to come out with their reputations intact to uh, have the American people view this as a fair process. So let me also grassly punctured uh, another argument that Republicans are making, including Doug Collins, uh, who has said this in a number of, of settings, that this isn't really a whistleblower. This is someone who's repeating who's uh, uh, repeating hearsay. He didn't get this firsthand. Uh, Doug Collins and other Republicans have tried to argue that that means he doesn't really comply, he or she, the whistleblower, doesn't comply with federal law on that. Grassley points out the distinctions, this is a quote from Grassley, the distinctions between drawn between, being drawn between first and secondhand knowledge aren't legal ones. And in fact, when you look at the legal statute, statute around whistleblowers, it, it doesn't support this notion that this is hearsay and therefore, because it's not firsthand, it isn't uh, reasonably protected by the whistleblower statute. And well, the transcript of the phone call itself is pretty damning. Well, absolutely. But nevertheless, there are Republicans like Doug Collins. Well, the, the, the origin of that comes in the uh, in the form itself, not in the statute, but the form itself asks, you, do you have firsthand knowledge of this? Check the box. Uh, that form was changed. But the law, uh, getting back to your point, Bill, has been in place for a long time that it doesn't necessarily uh, require complete firsthand knowledge. And one other point to be made, uh, I believe from the inspector general, someone correct me if I'm wrong, who's pointed out that this individual made it clear that some of the information they had was derived from other people, but some of it was firsthand based on their interpretation of what happened. And getting back to Melita's point, uh, this gets back to the, the question of fair due process. Uh, you know, the context in which that phone call was made is something that I believe that both sides need to allow uh, to come out in full in order to be make sure that they are viewed as being fair toward due process. And nor do we want the Russian government telling us whether or not conversations with their leader are admissible well, I mean, in our... Well, let's face it, the Russians can say whatever they want about yeah. this. It doesn't much matter as long as we're not uh, deciding that they, in fact, do have the right to determine that. So, I mean, and I think here process is important. So the idea that the whistleblower made a claim, it's like, look, I've come into some information and all the whistleblower is saying is this is worth investigating. Yes, that's all, that's all that's all a whistleblower does. And, and, and so, but, but the important thing to kind of think about here with the sort of it's worth investigating is that, one, it became more credible when I saw the whistleblower complaint and I saw the memcom, um, the transcript, and it was like, hmm, they're saying the same thing. All right. So, you know, I don't care how the whistleblower heard this. It seems like there's some there's some there there. But I've also thought about this in the context of my own responsibilities, and I think about this in terms of Title IX. So, you know, as a college professor, we are told that, you know, we are Title IX reporters. So if anybody came to me um, with a report, so let's say a student came to me and told me that, you know, she had been the victim of a sexual assault. I can't just keep it quiet because I didn't witness the event. I'm actually legally obligated mm -hmm. yeah. to go report this to the Title IX office of my university. So it doesn't matter whether or not I witnessed the event. If I've told um, this by somebody like then this is something that, you know, where I have details, then I'm supposed to go and, and, and make a report okay. of it. And I think that's the same thing that's yeah. going right. on here. Let's let's move on uh, to another aspect of this. Kevin Riley, we have been uh, told for months Nancy Pelosi has uh, said that she didn't want to start an impeachment process uh, unless there were really two conditions that were met. One, that it would be somewhat bipartisan. Well, we know that's not happening at this point. And two, that she wanted to see that there was some support among uh, voters out there, American people, uh, for this. And for the longest time, the polls have all reflected that Americans were opposed to this. 
that seems to be changing a bit. I'll let you talk about it. And then Andrew Gillespie, who has some real expertise on this, can also share her insights. Well, yeah. And so the the news you're hearing is that there's growing support, right? For uh, impeachment. For impeachment. And that when there wasn't before, but when you dig into the numbers, even at the most basic level, it's support among Democrats that's really grown. And elsewhere, there isn't support. So, I mean, I've, I've looked at this Quinnipiac poll a little bit. But, I mean, I think we just find ourselves in the spot that we thought we'd be in, which is Democrats like the idea, Republicans don't. It's, is it more complicated than that? So let me, let me just read the top lines and then, Andra, uh, dig in. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Yesterday, Quinnipiac, which I think it's safe to say is one of the, one of the real gold standard polls out there, uh, reported, let me go back a week, on September 25th, Quinnipiac reported that 37% of voters were in favor of impeachment proceedings against the president. 57% were for those proceedings. That's only five days ago. Yesterday, they reported that it is now 47-47. In other words, the numbers for launching the impeachment probe have risen 10 points. Uh, and, and that does seem to be dramatic, uh, Andra. Well, it depends on the sample size. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm noticing the direction, but I think it's too early for us to have expected a massive movement. And, and you know, the Quinnipiac and other polling uh, companies are going to uh, be putting this question out in the field over the next couple of weeks. And so we're going to be able to see a trend. And so I would say just pay attention to the trend. The problem and the reason why I sort of hesitate to say that we're seeing the type of movement that we think we're seeing here is that given the sample size, when you're comparing two different cross-sectional samples, so it's not like they went to the same people. They're going to two different sets of people who are being randomly pulled from the population. The margin of error that gets reported actually has to get inflated a little bit because you've got to deal with the fact that you are dealing with two separate samples of folks. So if that jump had been a 12-point jump, um, given the sample size, we would have been in a, in a territory where we would have been able to say that that's a significant difference. Let's say it jumps another 10 points a week from now or a month from now as more information comes. Then I would say based on where we were on September 25th, if the sample sizes are about the same, that that's probably kind of where we are right. in the middle of this. So right now, you know, it's a question of paying attention to the trends, but you just have to just keep in mind that your margin of errors go up by a little more than 40 percent. And we, I think we also, Melita, have to keep in mind that uh, the numbers are w- tilted heavily toward Democrats. I mean, 90 percent of Democrats in this uh, survey were for the impeachment inquiry. Uh, that's gone up from 73 percent. So that up, seems to me to be significant and sort of deals with your margin of error uh, number a bit. No, well, but, that sample size is smaller for that subset. Well, of I guess Democratic that's right. Okay. Voters, so. okay. But, but fair enough. The fair other enough. thing is, The report of polling data is always a day or so after the poll was taken. And the developments in this line of inquiry and the Republican response to it are almost on an hourly basis. You know, we're not in the kind of news cycle that 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 I grew up in, where you waited to hear the news from Uncle Walter every evening. The, the the fast moving pace of additional things coming out, I think, will have a dramatic difference in these poll numbers even 10 days from now, certainly a month from now, because so much continues to come out. And it's it's like the the snowball gaining traction as it goes downhill as more people come out, more people come out with other revelations. Kevin, what are your readers how are they responding? I mean, it feels a lot like this, where you'll you'll hear from people who believe we should be calling for the impeachment of the president on our editorial page, and then you will hear from people who believe the whole thing is a, a witch hunt. Um, and uh, I, again, I think it's very polarizing. But in the end, what do we know about that? It's really the people who aren't at the extremes who will be the ones who sway it one way or another, right? I mean, that's what the politicians have to pay and, attention to. And you know what's to. interesting, and this is a question to you, has there been any polling on, on this question? Uh, do you approve or disapprove of what the president did in that particular phone call? Because there are a fair number of folks, probably Republicans, more Republicans than Democrats, 
who would say, you know, I don't like this at all. I don't like what this president did, but I don't necessarily think it rises to the level of impeachment. So Has what, there been any kind of polling on that? I didn't see this in the Quinnipiac poll, but I might not have looked down deep enough in it. I know somebody else has asked whether or not they thought that there was a problem with yeah. what transpired in the call. Um, so I can't remember if that was NBC or if it was NPR, Marist, um, yeah. who did that poll. So in, in, in this poll, I think one of the interesting things to look at is just the gen- generic job approval, you know, which they've been tracking over time that basically doesn't move um so just, i mean there's noise in there so it's going up yeah. and down but i mean basically the numbers in terms of job approval yeah. have stayed the same because they're, they're, um and so yeah so you know i think this is going to be more gradual then I think some people want on, on both sides for it to happen. And so I think we just have to wait and see how I'm this changes page, with more information. I'm looking at page seven of this. Uh, yeah, I was just looking, we're for looking that. at. So they do have this question. And again, this is I think Quinnipiac we have the sample size uh, issues and everything. But it is this. Do you think President Trump has done something wrong regarding his interactions with the president of Ukraine? Or don't you think so? And then it says, uh, yes, something wrong, a total of 50%, and no, 40%. But the yes, something wrong is just 9% of Republicans and 86% of Democrats and 52% of independents. Yeah. So, I mean, the numbers are, again, sort of the same, right? I mean, it, 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 to me, it sort of makes the point, and Ed, I said this on the show yeah. yesterday, what's really fascinating about this entire episode is that I think if you brought a bunch of Republicans and Democrats, pro-Trump, anti-Trump people together in the same room, they would all pretty much agree that Donald Trump did do what the accusations are, that he did try to influence the president of Ukraine to get him dirt on Joe Biden. I think everybody would say, yep, he sure did. And many Republicans would say, and God bless him for doing that. And there are Democrats who would condemn him but uh, there because are, that's where we are but these But there days. are also a fair number of Republicans <laughs> who would say, you know, they shouldn't have done that. Well, maybe, like him but doing they wouldn't that. impeach him for but, it. But that's my point. But <laughs> I don't necessarily think it rises to the level of impeachment. That should instead be something that should be placed in, in the, on the scales to determine whether or not you vote to reelect him in 2000. All right, we've got to get to a break. Andra, based on what you're seeing, do you imagine that what Melita has suggested is likely to be true, that we're going to continue to see a trend toward people, and maybe even Republicans? I, there is some polling out there that shows a slightly larger group of Republicans are supporting the investigation. Do you think this is likely to continue? Do we have any way of gauging that? Uh, no, I mean, I think if there's more information that comes out, more bombshells, like stuff that continues to come out. So how Pompeo acted like he knew nothing about this call and turns out he was listening on the call. Um, if you have, you know, uh, one of the people, whether it's Volker or Voinovich, uh or Ivanovich who comes out and, and says something that is earth shattering, that's the type of information that people may update and they may start to change. Okay, their minds. Well, we'll watch for that. All right. We got to get to break. One other quick polling note. It's interesting. Morning consult, another poll, which is now getting good marks from 538, which kind of measures who are doing the good polls and who aren't. They've got Joe Biden uh, still at 31 percent, still 11 points ahead of anybody else in the field for the Democratic nomination. So all of us wise people who have been saying uh, this, uh, his name being dragged through this investigation is hurting him. So far, at least Morning Consult says that hasn't happened. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about Georgia politics. This fall, we're counting on the participation of everyone who listens to cover the rising costs of the programs we bring you on GPB. If we didn't hear from you during our fall fund drive, there's still time to support the programs that make a difference in your life. Please take a moment now to make an online contribution. Go to gpb.org and click Donate at the top of the page. Your contribution at whatever level is right for you will help cover the costs of the programs you love on GPB. Thank you so much for your support of Georgia Public Broadcasting. China's President Xi Jinping talks a lot about the Chinese dream, which sounds pretty different from the American version. We Chinese like harmony, like we want everything to be balanced or, you know, like that kind of zen. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, taking stock of modern China on its 70th birthday, plus the latest on the House impeachment inquiry this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's four till seven this afternoon on GPB and gpbnews.org. Ed Lindsay, you were a member of the Georgia House, so you can enlighten us, I think, uh, to some extent on what's going on here. Today, October 1st, we're supposed to be seeing the result of the 4% 
initial budget cuts that the governor asked for state agencies to make put in place. This is the beginning of the fiscal fiscal year, right? That's uh, that's correct. Uh, and and in the uh, hearings last week, the legislators had the budget hearings, which typically would include agency heads coming and presenting their budgets to the uh, to the members of the committees, uh, but. They didn't do it because the governor told them not to show up. Um, we we now see that the legislature, that Ralston and others, the legislative leaders, are saying to the agency heads, give us your numbers. We want to see them, even though the governor doesn't want you, you to present them to us. But we also saw what I started to go for was the state economist last week said there is a chance for a mild recession. And, and so... Uh, Kemp is not being uh, unwise in looking for cuts. He might be uh, he might be making smart decisions. I got that sort of jumbled. I apologize for that. But those are two things to look at. The state economists saying we might be entering a mild recession. Mm -hmm. uh, so the budget cuts are necessary. But the governor continuing to seem to want to pick a fight with legislators instead of bringing them on board for this whole process. Well, two points. Uh, number one, uh Full disclosure, I've been suffering under post-traumatic stress disorder uh, when I started to hear this because I was uh, the uh, appropriations yeah. education chair in 2009 when I was part of the process in which we had to reduce the state budget from 21.2 to 17.4 billion in one year. Yeah. Uh, what you have here is is a process concern. Uh, until the governor releases his budget, uh, the the department heads work with the governor to come up with the state budget for the next year and these and the uh temper uh, the, the mid-year budget uh that that gets passed so the governor is sort of saying this is my turf until january stay out of my lane let me uh do my job let me go through the budget process with my team and formulate my proposed budget before the legislature gets its look at it uh, beginning the second Monday in January. That's number one. And number two, also along the same lines, the governor goes, I do have discretion uh, to determine whether or not, you know, in mid, when, this, when the General Assembly is out of session, to uh, reduce spending because of a possible uh, recession down the road. So this is, this is a turf uh, concern. Uh, not unexpected. Uh, Why is it like not expected? Is it not unexpected? Because because the governors like to protect. Uh, oh. This is their province. Their province is to uh, to basically formulate the budget. Uh, that's how the Constitution is set up for him to set the revenue number, then formulate a proposed budget to the General Assembly, and then the hearings take place after he puts his proposed budget out uh, after the General Assembly comes into session. You know, and uh, Speaker Ralston, by contrast, is doing, I think, a very prudent thing as well, because he's going, well, that may be your normal province in a normal year. Uh, but if you're starting to look at uh, reduced uh, revenue and reduced spending, we've got to start preparing ourselves as well. My guess is that there's a little bit of maneuvering going on on both sides, and they'll work out a contract. Kevin, I can't help but wonder. Uh, the governor's people last week uh, suddenly said, look, we're not asking agency heads to make a lot of cuts in staffing. We want them to look at things like vendor contracts. We want them to look at services that are maybe duplicative or whatever. And, and I can't help but feel that while he wanted to get that basic message out to his voting base, you know, I'm cutting, I'm slashing spending, which is a perfectly legitimate uh, position, the messaging may not have been as strong as they would have liked, and now they find themselves uh, kind of under uh, attack, even within their own uh, legislative uh, uh, leadership place. Yeah, I mean, to me, it also seems a little bit like sort of classic bureaucratic maneuvering, right? I mean, if if... If the boss asks me to cut my budget, I may choose a pretty painful way to cut that budget so that when he's sitting down hearing about it, he might not cut mine. And mm -hmm. the most painful way, right, is is people. There are a lot of state employees. There are a lot of those people are voters. And uh, to me, I don't know, Ed, from, from a legislative point of view, isn't that uh, kind of a typical thing to have? Well, we saw that, I'll, I'll be honest with you, in 2009 when folks right. had to make a big cut. And keep in mind, 4 to 6% is not really that bad to be honest with you. I mean, we would hope uh, that not to be placed in that position because that perhaps foretells a possible mild recession. But 4 to 6% is is not something that most agencies could not find. The, when you the say 4 to 6, 
It's yeah. 4% in the current budget. And, 6%. and then it's 6% additional yeah. in the next year. So it's really, over a period of less than a year, 10%. Well, it's actually reduction. more than that, the way right. the math works. Yeah. Right. And, and it depends on the particular agencies, because what, what oftentimes happens, what does happen, is that different uh, departments get cut at different levels. Uh, once again, back during my time, education got cut less than anything else. Other areas uh, got cut more. But, but, um, but, but what I'm simply saying is that the whether, you know, it, yes, it's 4% now and 6% possible in the later, depending on but, how the economy right. goes. But we're still talking it, about a relatively it, small it, amount. Well, maybe. But, Melita, it, you know, what a governor could do in a state of the state address, which is with a time frame that would normally uh, we'd look be looking at a budget and could have done really presumably in this case is to have gotten them have given a speech in front of whatever group they decided and said, we still have wasteful spending in this state. We are still committed to making sure that Georgians get the most value for their dollar. We're going to look at that wasteful spending. That, it strikes me, could have been a very positive message for the governor. And I'm not sure they ever thought through to get to that point, because now state employees are scared. People are worried out there if their services are going to be cut, you know? Well, the the state has the highest rainy day reserve fund right. that it's ever had. There were tax decreases that haven't been looked at. So anytime you're looking at cutting back on the spending and you don't also look at the tax cuts you've just passed, that is not necessarily the wisest policy. And I think the other thing is that certain parts of state government are already pretty lean and mean, and there's not a look at the overall big picture to say which parts of state government services are most essential yeah. when it's an across-the-board, give me your cuts. Andra? So I have a question for Ed based on your experience. How much did you revise the budget that was sent to you from the governor once you got into committee? A fair amount, uh, and you know, a lot of it was on particular. Keep in mind, the one thing that we can't revise is the revenue estimate. Right. Uh, that is 100% set by the governor. That's set by the and, governor. And be sure our listeners know what that is. It's the amount of money, revenue, the state expects to yeah. take in. But And that's 100% the province of the governor. Now, you can play within the numbers on that. Mm -hmm. And, for instance, when I was education chair, uh, we had certain moves that would sort of cut some of the uh, services that helped the rural uh, school boards uh, administratively. I tried to protect that because rural school boards generally didn't have a way to make up shortfalls through... Uh, through other revenue sources that urban areas do. Also, I do remember a big fight over uh, school nurses. Uh, quite frankly, uh, the governor, uh, Purdue, wanted to cut those out completely. We put those back in, but we had to find the money somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, what that would sense to me is for the uh, these department heads who, you know, have, have been making this budget with the governor, whomever they're afraid of most is who they're going to cater to. So it's kind of like a principal agent problem. Yeah. Um, and so if they are afraid that the General Assembly is going to completely revise the budget in ways that's going to be harmful to them, then it would make sense for them to show up. But if they're more afraid of the governor, their sort of titular boss in terms of the hierarchy, then maybe they're going to kind of stick with him. And so this is an interesting game of chicken, uh, it, one would say, in terms of what the final outcome is going yeah, to be. It, it, is, it is, but, but, I, but I, I want to sort of go back to Bill's, Bill's comment a moment ago, because I think the governor's trying to do the right thing rather than wait till January and say, oh, oh by I'm the way, not suggesting surprise. he might be. I wasn't even, no, no. I was just suggesting yeah. he could have gotten the message out differently. Yeah. That's all I was you trying know, to say. I, I, he's getting the message out. He's sort of saying, okay, guys, let's start to take a hard look uh, at where we are. Um, let's hope that we don't have a mild, you know, 50-50 also means 50% chance of no mild recession. And, uh, you know, we'll have a better picture of it in January, but let's be prepared for the worst case scenario. Kevin James Salzer, who keeps on top of the budget for for the AJC, I mean, nobody knows the budget better than than, than James. He, he has legislators calling him up <laughs> and asking him, him to explain certain aspects of the budget. And, and I, I will say that as he has been pointing out the places where there could be some cuts in services that could have an impact on people out there. But I was interested in the fact that when we did a show with him last week, um, he, he did not make it sound like a precipitous situation in terms of what Ed's talking about now, whether we're going to see 
dramatic uh, cuts in various agencies, whether services to the public are going to be cut dramatically. There are a couple areas that uh, he, he was concerned about. But to some extent, I wonder if this is less about a dramatic story than just what Andres talking about, a clashing of wills here. Yeah, I mean, also, right, I mean, the governor could be saying, all right, let's look at four this year and six next year, and then ultimately decide, oh, it turns out that maybe we only have to do one or two, and maybe we have to do three next year. I mean, that's a classic yeah. budgeting technique and a way to draw people out, right? I mean, the legislators care about special things that they passed mm-hmm. and and programs they care about. And James has pointed some of those out, right, in our reporting where, gosh, we really heard all about this in my committee and we did something about it. And that's going to be the first thing to go once the department gets a hold of it. It it is a back and forth. Getting back to Andre's question, I can think of of numerous different uh, areas in which we had to look at going, "Uh we're not doing it here. We'll take a look over here instead. And that's the province of the the House first and then the Senate. Melita, if I were the, the Democrat on this, I'd certainly be looking to see whether the legislature will move forward with plans for another tax, income tax cut this year. They did it last year, uh, and they are trying to defend it now in the light of these budget cuts, but there's also a proposed cut for next session as well. Well, there's that, and then there's also the increasing talk of some other form of gambling for Georgia, and that this whole charade of let's worry about the budget is opening the door to some other form of of gambling. But you're casinos. not suggesting that this Democrats is a charade not, by, by the governor, because the governor's certainly not enthusiastic about the notion of letting casino gambling. Uh, He's yeah. not, but there are certain other folks well, sure. uh, that are saying, well, we need to come up with new revenue sources. All right. And I will say this, this is both Republicans and Democrats I, are looking at that. All right. I got to get to a break. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about what's the latest developments in the uh, two Senate races here in Georgia. Everybody. If you recently supported GPB during our fall fund drive, thank you. We're already putting your dollars to work to bring you the programs that matter to you on GPB. If you didn't get a chance to donate during the drive, your online contribution now will still make a difference. Please take a couple of minutes to go to gpb.org and click the green donate button at the top of the page. Thanks so much for your generous support of GPB and the service we provide every day. On the next Fresh Air, Jack Goldsmith, he handled sensitive national security matters as head of the Office of Legal Counsel in George W. Bush's Justice Department. He also had a deep personal connection to the case of labor leader Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. Both experiences raise questions about the abuse of government power. He has a new memoir. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB, gpbnews.org, and on the GPB apps. Kevin Riley, the applications are still open. If you want to apply to Governor Kemp for the Johnny Isaacson seat in the Senate, uh, you still have a chance to do that. You know, I've been wondering about uh, getting on there and just putting your name in. Yeah. Bill, uh, well, I would, be, I, would be among, I would be among 450 applicants now. And uh, the latest are uh, Speaker Pro Tem Jan Jones, who has been a very strong Republican leader in the House for some time now. And then Chuck F. Stration, who is, uh, again, a Republican House member and who has caused most of, got got a lot of attention this last session because he proposed a hate crimes bill as a Republican, which people hadn't been doing for a long uh, time up there. You know what, Um, Andra, Jan Jones is an interesting candidate. She's not tied at the hip to anything going on in Washington. Um, she's been a powerful leader in the House. She ticks off the gender box, which Republicans need so desperately. Talk about that. Well, um, in terms of gender, you know, last year, the 2018 elections were kind of dubbed the second year of the woman after 1992 because of the number of women who were elected uh, to uh, to the House of Representatives. But it was almost exclusively on the Democratic side. And so it's only a handful of Republican women who got elected to do seats. And when we look at the number of Republican uh, women who are in the Senate, there are about 25 women who are uh, are senators now. I'm 24 if I'm counting them wrong because I've been known to do that in the past. But of that group, um, only eight of them are Republican women. Mm-hmm. And so there's this huge gender imbalance. And so it would be important. It's also 
regionally, I think also really important to point out that a lot of the Republican women um, are representing Southern states. So if you're looking at Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee um, and Cindy Hyde Smith in in, in Mississippi, uh, the idea that, you know, Georgia shouldn't have a Republican woman um, in the Senate kind of makes that uh, sort of a more a much more attractive type of thing. Melita, if Jan Jones, let's just use her as an example. If she if you had a woman on that on that in that uh, uh, jungle election, which we're going to have in yes. next November, year from November. Are we, is is she, is she likely, could that woman in fact encourage suburban women to go ahead and vote she for... She would encourage suburban Republican pro-life women to vote for her. <laughs> but there is, there are a lot of suburban, well-educated women who are motivated about reproductive freedom issues, which include things like maternal mortality and access to contraceptives. It's not just about abortion. But they're also very motivated by the issues of gun safety for their children because they're horrified by babies of five and six coming home showing parents how they stand on a toilet at school to practice a gun safety drill. Those moms are not necessarily going to be impressed by Jan Jones' record. Gender isn't the key to their votes. It's the issues. And that's why Democratic women in the Georgia General Assembly outnumber their Republican women colleagues 3.2 to 1. Ed? Uh, With all due respects, Jan Jones checks an awful lot of boxes. And I dare any Democrat to go up one-on-one with her in a debate. I mean, she is an absolute master uh, at policy issues. Uh, I do think that she broadens uh, the base uh, on uh, in, in the suburbs. Uh, she ta- has taken on a lot of issues of great concern to to women and men uh, across the board and on education reform policies and on uh, basic bread and butter issues like transportation and other things uh, when, when it comes to improving the quality of, of life. Uh, of Georgia citizens, she does great. That's number right. one. Number two, hold on, Rupert. Enough she's a of the advertisement. But she's for also her. A str- I know that. But she's also a strong supporter <laughs> of Kemp. And that's okay. I suggest there's something else, Kevin. If you're not tied at the hip to Donald Trump, and Jan Joe certainly isn't, she's in the Georgia legislature, and 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 I'm sure she supports Trump. But you're going to be in a, an election next fall with Democrats and Republicans. And if you hope to emerge from that into again, new run, you may have to have some Democratic votes. And if you're not associated with Trump and if the impeachment probe continues to move forward, uh, that might be a benefit. But as I said that to you, Andre Gillespie's making well, a no, face I, like I do think once that's again, right. she Bill, checks some boxes. And yeah. and I, I think if you're the Republicans, you really got to think about whether you can afford to stick another white man in that job. And right. I, I just think it's an, and she immediately becomes a statewide name at that moment. Yeah. So right. you got to like her chances. What's wrong with what I just proposed, Andra? Well, okay. So I want to get back to something, and I kind of okay. want to underscore what <laughs> Melita said earlier. Um, nominating a woman, a Republican woman, does not guarantee. In fact, you should not expect to have Democratic female re- defections just because somebody. Oh no, is a no, woman. I, I, right? People, right. people right. just don't vote that way. Party right. actually matters more than gender in. Um, in that context, I think probably what I was looking at you for is all she has to do is make it to the runoff. There's no, but, but oh, right, right, in and, a and, jungle and Donald, runoff. And then the all she has to do is make it to the runoff, and by the time we get to the runoff, Donald Trump isn't on the ballot. Oh. So you know, so I mean, yeah, yeah I get gotcha. it, but like there, there, you know, so it, she it's can a get to the runoff complex. with Republican votes. You're suggesting, yeah, okay. and independent. She, that, fair yes. enough. Fair enough. Well, and she might make Purdue look better. If Purdue is running on a ticket that has another Republican, but she's a woman at the top of the ticket, she might make Purdue look better because I think he's going to have some some real challenges. Right. Which gets back to my point real quickly of, of enhancing the ticket both in 2020 and 2022. Okay, look, we don't accept political advertising, obviously. <laughs> We're public broadcasting. But if we did, uh, we'd be looking for you all in this ad hoc Jan Jones committee right now to make yeah. a big contribution at Lindsay. But Although, I also like a lot of the I other I was candidates. just going to say, you have not certainly said that she is your candidate. No. And I'm just I'm just giving you a hard time. One really quick note. Uh, Mike Thurman was up in Washington. He'll be on the show on Friday, so it'll be interesting to ask him about it. But Thurman now seems to truly be exploring whether he wants to get into the 
we don't even know if it's race one or race two at this point. Well, somebody's going to have to get in a race two at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, it shouldn't be everybody. Um, so you can kind of understand why there hasn't been a mad Democratic rush to, to, to the second race. But there is going to have to be a consensus about who is going to be the candidate uh, to try to run to at least hit second place in that runoff for uh, for, for Johnny Isaacson's seat. Um, you know, uh, Mike Thurman sort of in his public comments has sort of touted he's held statewide office before. He He's got a good reputation of being able to work with Republicans, which I think would actually be, you know, really important in the state. He's developed a reputation in DeKalb County as being the cleanup man. So, um, I mean, there are lots of, of, of boxes that he could check off. There are some weaknesses. He's he's run for Senate before, yeah. and so you know, I think it would be a question of of, of whether or not he's learned anything and can actually not a great fundraiser upon you know upon those and, and to kind of deal with with those weaknesses. Not a great fundraiser. No, but I think nobody. On the Democratic side of any consequence, will announce for that seat until after the governor makes his sure, appointment, sure, because it's sense. very hard to announce that you're running against a ghost. Okay, uh, th- thank you for all that, Kevin Riley. Today is Jimmy Carter's 95th birthday. Already, wow! How <laughs> <laughs> it's just a remarkable. I came to Georgia in 1983, and there were two things that I was excited about when I moved here. One was that I was going to get to meet some of these incredible civil rights leaders who I'd looked at from a distance as a school kid in Chicago and going to university in Ohio and uh, and getting a chance to cover Jimmy Carter, who's had a remarkable life. Yeah, one of my great thrills was meeting him uh, just uh, a couple weeks or so after I arrived. You know, and it, and it's and having a chance to have talked to him through the years, he did call me out at a very public event, which is a whole other story. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bluestein tweeted a lovely article he wrote, I think ten or more years ago, about the long-term marriage and relationship between the president and Mrs. Carter, and it's well worth checking the Bluestein Twitter feed to read. And Mike Lukovich's great cartoon about Jimmy Carter for Cancer Survivor is just an absolute classic. (laughs) I mean, so uh, I remembered uh, occasionally at Emory, because he's on the faculty there, you'll get summoned to go to lunch with him. And I remembered the day I got summoned, I was terrified. And I'm not sure I made the best impression. Uh, But he came to my class. And like, I have a really grainy picture of the day he came to my class. And that's always going to be a a nice treasured memory. And then also for him, I have my grandfather was born the year before him, both farmers, not on the scale of of President Carter, but I remember Jason and I kind of bonding over the fact that we His had grandson. grandfathers who were farmers with somewhat similar personalities. And my grandfather, unfortunately, died in 2014. But like you know, as 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 I because I pegged their lives together, I guess I still kind of live vicariously through yeah. Jason's grandfather. Ed, Ed, well, uh, speaking of grainy uh, pictures, I have a grainy picture. Uh, in 1977, I was a Hearst Foundation scholar, and if you were one of the two Georgia delegates, you got to get on the state on the podium. Uh, with Jimmy Carter and get a picture taken. And so I still have that that picture. Well, I stayed up the night he was elected president in planes and was there when he flew back into planes (laughs) as president-elect. And the Columbus Ledger Inquirer had the newspapers to hand out. That's my memory. Well, we wish you a very, very happy birthday, uh, President Jimmy Carter, and for all you've done for uh, this state, for the world. Um, we're grateful that you've had 95 years and wish you many more. And Ed Lindsay, you've got an important birthday in your family along those lines. That's exactly right. Uh, to my mother, uh, who was born uh, 60 <laughs> miles from Plains, Georgia, uh, but two years after Jimmy Carter. She so, turned 93 today. Her name is? Mary Dennard Lindsay. Happy birthday, Mary Dinner, Lindsay. Thank you all very much for being here for another Political Rewind. We'll be back again tomorrow at 2. See you then.